We're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel today, chapter 21. If you want to turn there, you can. But I want to begin today's message with a story. 25 years ago, a woman walked into our church at Oasis. She came alone because at that time her husband wasn't a Christian. But she had been a Christian, and so she came and found her way to Oasis. And over time, I began to get to know her. And uh, in, in talking to her over the course of a couple years, I found out that her and her husband desperately wanted children. They went to doctor after doctor, and each doctor confirmed the same thing. It is medically impossible for you to conceive. So they began years of in vitro fertilization. They spent I don't know how much money, countless thousands of dollars. And it, it's, it's not an easy process, especially for her. And yet she willingly and joyfully went through those processes time and time again. And each time they were disappointed. And one day, wonder of all wonders, she got pregnant. It was a miracle. Medically proven by many people, it was a, an impossibility. And because of that, her husband started coming to church. And over time, he raised the white flag of surrender over his life, and and he became a Christian. They were faithful members of the church for a lot of years. And I did the dedication for their son, Nathan. It was one of the most moving dedications I've ever done, of of a baby dedication, because I knew what this child meant to them. I knew the miracle it took, this walking answer to prayer. Two years ago, Nathan was 12 years old, and he was diagnosed with cancer. Devastating. How could this be? How could the the miracle child, going through what they went through, how could this happen to him? How could this happen to them? Nathan began a series of chemotherapy, radiation. For four months, he couldn't leave the house unless it was to go for his treatments. And after four months, the doctors declared that he was in remission. A lot of you remember this, that we're we're there. but So he was going to be able to leave house for the very first time in four months. Christmas morning was on a Sunday. And not only was he going to be able to leave the house, he was going to be able to go to church for the first time in a lot of months. And it was going to be Christmas Day. And Nicole, his mom, was telling me how, you know, he's so excited to be able to leave the house and, and so excited to be with his friends at church and so excited to celebrate Christmas at church. But he's really self conscious because his immune system is so depleted by the chemotherapy that the doctor said if he goes out, he's got to wear a surgical mask. And he doesn't even care. He's so excited about going to church, he doesn't even care. That morning when they walked into church, everybody in the congregation was wearing surgical masks. And it's one of the proudest times I've ever been of God's church because that's what happens when God's people act like Christians. Now let me ask you something. How did that story make you feel? They will never forget that Christmas, and now you won't forget it either. You'll remember 
that message long after you, you'll remember that story long after you forget this message. And I want to tell you, that's the power of a story. That's the power of a testimony. That's why testimonies are so important. Think about the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people got saved on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because they heard people speaking in their own language, declaring the mighty deeds of God. That's a testimony. Just telling God's story. The Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, stories. The Old Testament is a story of how God interacted with the nation of Israel primarily, and the New Testament is the story of Jesus Christ. There's power in the testimony, in the stories, your story, my story. Think about John the Revelator there on the island of Patmos as he was writing the book of Revelation under the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And he wasn't just talking about end times. In many ways, he was talking about all times. But this is what he said. He said, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accusers of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You think there's not power in testimony? In stories? Your story? My story? As Rod said in the video, we're wrapping up the series on David today. It's kind of ironic. Remember when he started the series? He was standing up here with the shepherd's staff. He's talking about how there on the, out, on the hills outside of Jerusalem, there among the sheep was David all alone underneath the stars, and God was preparing and molding and shaping David all alone. It's like we've come full circle, because today we're going to see later in his life, God is still preparing him, only he's not doing it alone. He's doing it with a bunch of people. The story today begins 3,000 years ago. David has been the faithful shepherd of his father's flock for many years. He's killed at this point in his life both a lion and a bear while caring for and protecting the flock. He's already been anointed by the prophet Samuel and promised that he would be Israel's next king. Already at this young age, he's felt the indignation of seeing the army of Israel stand idly by as a giant named Goliath taunts and ridicules the army of Israel and worse yet, the God of Israel. And it was that indignation, that indignation that rose up in this young man that drove David into action against the giant Goliath. And in 1 Samuel 17, it says, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. That's what drove this young teenage boy into action against a nine-foot giant. It wasn't because of anything other than the good name of the God that he loved. And that's exactly what he did. This wasn't any empty threat. At this point in his life, David has fought and won many battles. David's life has been pretty incredible up till now. And it's been unbelievably successful. 
1 Samuel 18 says, Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. You can tell a lot about a person when their promotion pleases a lot of people. When people applaud and they're happy instead of jealous for his his promotion. But here, in 1 Samuel chapter 21 we see one of the darkest times, one of the darkest periods in all of David's life. You know, even the heroes of the faith have difficult times. Dark days, times of uncertainty, times of unbelief, times of doubt and question, saying, God, what are you doing? This is one of those times. It's easy to to forget that we're reading the highlights when we read the Bible. The days where nothing happened, or when dark things happen, sometimes get cut out. And all the good times when, when the, it was exciting and the miraculous and God rescued, they get crammed together and we can kind of get a bad picture of what really took place back then. David was a great guy, successful, promoted, loved by everybody, but he had his dark times just like you do and just like I do. At this point, King Saul has allowed his jealousy of David to build in to nothing short of a rage. And at this moment in history, the king has already tried to kill David many times. And so David says, enough of this, and he flees. This period of David's deepest suffering becomes the turning point in his life and the turning point in his ministry. In spite of all that he had accomplished before this. 1 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 10, it says, That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. And so he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the door of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you had to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? While there at Gath, David is recognized as the king and he fears for his life. And it says he feigned insanity. Now, think about what I just said, all that David had accomplished. A lion, a bear, a giant. One over the multitudes. Everybody loved him. People sang about the king slaying a thousand, but they sing about David slaying 10,000. And here he is feigning insanity. How sad. The Lord's anointed one, faking insanity. And you know why? Because of the fear of men. Because of the fear of men. It'll do that to you. The Bible says that fear of man proves to be a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord is kept safe. And that's true today. We live in a culture where there's fear of men everywhere. We're afraid to stand on our morals. We're afraid to stand on scripture. We're afraid to speak up about what's right and wrong, what's sin and what isn't. We're either shocked, shamed, or embarrassed into silence. And the same thing will happen to us that will happen to him. The culture kind of goes insane 
when people are afraid to speak up about the truth. This is the same man who fought the lion and the bear and the same man who stood up to a giant as a teenager. And the story goes on in the next chapter, chapter 22, verse 1. It says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? And so he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go to the land of Judah. And so David left and went to the forest of Hereth. David flees Saul to the cave of Adullam. And it was while hiding in that cave, fearing for his life, that David wrote many of the Psalms that you and I all know very well. One of them is Psalm 57, and he writes about the experience in the cave. And as he prays this Psalm, or sings this Psalm, he says to God, Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until this disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. Selah. God sends his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows and whose tongues are sharp as swords. He's saying, I don't only have to worry about King Saul and all of his army coming after me. I'm trapped in this cave with a bunch of people whose teeth are like spears and whose tongues are sharp as swords. He calls them ravenous beasts. There's nowhere for him to hide. It looks like the cave is his stronghold, but he realizes the cave isn't his stronghold. God is his stronghold. At this point in his life, the king, King Saul, sent 3,000 hired assassins to kill David. I'd call that a disaster if they were coming after me. But David says to God, God, you and you alone will be my refuge. In spite of all of his troubles, notice what David decided in his heart later in the same psalm. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So you're trapped with a bunch of ravenous wolves, 400, in a cave, that you can't leave because 3,000 hired assassins are on the outside trying to kill you, and this is what he's going to talk to God about? Yet will I sing. He didn't lose his joy. He didn't shake his fist in God's face and said, how could you let this happen to me? He, he said, yet will I sing. He didn't lose his joy. I will praise you, O Lord. He continued to worship. He didn't say, you know, I don't like the way you're treating me, God, so to punish you, I'm going to not believe you in you anymore. People do it all the time. Yet will I sing, he didn't lose his joy. Yet will I praise you, he still worshiped. And yet will I sing of you among the people, he didn't lose his testimony. He didn't lose his witness. 
He didn't scratch his head and say, I don't get it. He didn't spin on his heels, turn around and walk away and abandon God. He said, be exalted, O God. Disaster didn't silence David. Problems didn't turn David against God. Fear didn't harden David's heart. Why? Because David made a decision. And that's all it was. He's got the same heart beating in his chest that you and I have beating in ours. No different, nothing special. But he made a decision. He said, my heart will be steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. I want to linger here for a minute. Because this is a good place to stop and for all of us to examine our own hearts. Lamentation says, let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. The Bible in the New Testament says, examine yourselves to see where you're at in the faith. This is a good point to stop and examine. Because we all have strongholds that we're dealing with. We all have problems. We all have doubts and uncertainties and issues of life that we deal with. And what effect has it had on your heart? Is your heart pure or is it polluted? Polluted maybe with the fear of men. Polluted maybe with the pursuit of wealth. Polluted with the worldly wisdom that all of a sudden what used to be wrong is now right and what used to be right now is wrong in our culture today. The the cultural standards and, and acceptances of today. Those things pollute our hearts. Is your heart pure or polluted? Is it hard or is it soft? Is your heart full of faith or is it full of doubt? Is your heart centered on God or on yourself? Are our hearts steadfast like David's was? Examine yourselves to see where you're at in the faith. Now back to the story. All this, the scenario that we've just painted, all this, it all begs a question. If this is David... If this is the man after God's own heart, if this is the man God chose and anointed to be king of Israel, the righteous ruler of Israel, if this is the man who as a child faced a lion and a bear and as a teenager faced a giant named Goliath, what's he doing hiding in a cave? Do you have an answer to that? I'll tell you what he's doing. And he doesn't know he's doing it. He's being prepared by God for his future. Remember, on the hill outside Jerusalem, with a shepherd's staff, he was being prepared? Full circle. He's still being prepared. He's being prepared by God to sit on the throne of Israel, prepared to trust God no matter what God says and no matter what God does. God looks at David and says, David, you're not ready for the throne yet. You're barely ready for the cave. You couldn't lead a retreat right now. But you're going to be the king of Israel. And this cave will prepare you for the throne of Israel if you'll let it. If you won't get ticked. If you won't spin on your heels and walk away. If you don't shake your fist in my face and question me and doubt what I'm doing. This cave is going to prepare you for your future. This story was written in Hebrew. In the Hebrew language, you know what the the word adullam means? The making of a testimony. 
God sent him to this cave, and this cave and what he lived through will become David's story one day. It will become his testimony. His testimony of God's faithfulness. His testimony of God willing to protect, even at 3,000 to 1 odds. God's provision there in the cave. They didn't go hungry and starve. God's transforming power. And I honestly believe God's doing the same with every person here today. Whatever struggles you're facing, whatever difficulties you're going through, whatever confusion you're trying to navigate, it's all done by God to prepare us for our future. It says the first thing that happened was David's family showed up. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. What do you do when a, when a person, a friend, faces adversity? I read this morning, early this morning when I got up, about uh, the, the Christmas that Garrett and Kayla and the ministry they're involved in take to the homeless in Redlands and in San Bernardino. I said, that's a brother and a sister who were born for adversity, other people's adversity. They're the kind of Christians I want to become someday. A brother is born for adversity. And after his family, the next thing we read is, all those who were in distress came to David. All those who were in debt showed up. All those who were discontented began to arrive. God had promised David that he would give him an army, and look who showed up. David says, God, you gave me the wrong army. This is Pastor Rod's army. This can't be my army. I don't want a bunch of people who are distressed and in debt. I want people with money. I don't want people who are fed up and discouraged. I want people who are happy and excited. And yet he looks around and there's 400 of them. Teeth as sharp as swords. It says those in distress came. You know, if there's one word for, to describe our country today, it would be distressed. Why has our nation been crumbling spiritually, morally, financially, and every other way a nation crumbles? America is distressed because of a spiritual vacuum. I want to tell you something. We don't have a crime problem in this nation. We have a sin problem that causes people to commit crimes. We don't have a drug problem in this nation. We've got a sin problem in this nation that drives people to take drugs. We don't have racial problems in this nation. We have sin problems in this nation that divide us over the most stupid reason ever. Every problem this nation faces can be traced back to a spiritual problem and it has a spiritual solution. And, and we've got that solution. There's very little godly influence in our, found in our country anymore. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, and if things don't change, the end will be destruction, just like the Bible says. And even the church is distressed. Think about the people you know personally. Compare the number of people who are stressed out Christians with those who are walking in the joy of the Lord. Compare the number of defeated Christians to those who are more than conquerors. Compare the number of Christians that are growing stronger and stronger with those who are growing weaker and weaker. Compare the fully devoted followers of Jesus with those who are half-hearted in following Jesus. You can see the church is distressed because many times it's the fear of man, but sometimes it's just the world seeping into the church instead of the church going out to the world. It says, next came the indebted. Again, 
people are indebted more today than any other time in our history. And I'm not just talking about financially indebted. I'm talking about captives and slaves to desires, to the desire for things. Sacrificing more and more in order to get those things. People are sacrificing their family, their future, their priorities, their morals, their integrity. They sacrifice their health trying to get wealth and then they spend their wealth trying to get back their health. Right? But Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things, and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Many of us are, are indebted to pleasures or habits or lifestyles. We're spending our lives on earth instead of trying to invest our lives in heaven. Finally, it says the discontented showed up. These were the people who were really fed up. They grumbled, they griped, they murmured, they complained, they were confident, they had the gift of discouragement given by God. They were embittered because they wanted more out of life than they were experiencing. They knew instinctively there must be more. And you know why? The Bible says God put eternity in the hearts of men. There's an instinctive knowledge that we all have that the only way to live life the way we were designed to live life is to live life with God. Because God put eternity in our hearts. So David is in a cave with 400 griping, quarreling misfits of society. The distressed, the indebted, the discontent, the stressed out and fed up. This was David's army. It wasn't made up of great people or educated people or rich people or powerful people or skilled people or talented people or even good people. Again, they had teeth as sharp as arrows and tongues as sharp as swords. But guess what? Do you know what happened to these 400 misfits of society? They became known as David's mighty men. These were them. This is how they started, and they ended up as David's mighty men. Men of renown. Men of valor. Men of accomplishment and courage. Men who did great exploits. And so do you see what God's showing us in this story? No matter who you and I are today, no matter what circumstances we're facing, depressed over problems, indebted or bankrupt, discontent over life in general, God can and will do for us what he did with the 400 men in the cave of Adullam. He will. Adullam, the making of a testimony. A testimony of how God can take 400 people just like us and do great things with them. And how did these 400 distressed, indebted, and discontented men become David's mighty men of valor? Was it because they looked to David? No. It was because David kept his testimony of God's goodness. And David pointed them to God. He said, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the people. Because David knew that only God could prepare them for their future, just like only God can prepare you and I for our future. I believe with my whole heart God has a plan for every one of us here today. And that plan includes us being prepared for that plan right now, even though it's in the future. And that plan is unique and different for all of us in some ways, but it's the same for all of us in other ways. That plan includes Him at the center of our lives. How did God mold and develop these misfits 
through their relationship together being trapped in a cave, rubbing the rough edges off of each other. 400 people living together, depending upon each other, caring for one another, protecting one another, preferring one another ahead of themselves, serving one another, honoring one another, and finally, loving one another. Isn't that the message of the New Testament? The New Test- most of the New Testament just tells us how to treat each other. That's a description of this miracle called the church. And I want to tell you something. Sanctuary is your cave. Sanctuary is your cave of Adullam, that place of fellowship, that place of safety, the place that God is developing our character, and the place God is molding us into the people he wants us to be all through our relationships together. Solomon said, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. He was the wisest man who ever lived. He said, two are better than one. And and my reasoning is, if two are better than one, then three are better than two. And four are better than three. That's why he invented this thing called the church. And I get so upset. And if you want to hear a pastor cuss, just try this. I get so upset when Christians talk bad about the church. Jesus invented the church, came right from his heart to meet human need. Jesus loves the church. You hear me say it again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Jesus gave himself for the church and gave himself up for the church. Jesus protects the church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus is coming back for the church, a bride without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. So don't talk smack about the church to me or I'll give you a Bible study with a hard-covered Bible. So ask yourselves, are you distressed, facing problems that make your future uncertain? Are you indebted, spending your life somehow just trying to survive? Are you discontent, restless and unhappy, feeling like there must be more in life? The good news is there is more in life. Jesus called it the abundant life or the life more abundant. Things don't have to stay the way they are. God has designed a way for things to change. But it requires a commitment on our part. A commitment first to make him our life's top priority. That we will spend our one and only life making him the number one priority in that life. The second commitment is to build our life around our relationship with Jesus. And the third commitment, and you don't hear this very often, is to make a commitment to build your life around the church. Because Jesus gave his life for the church. You don't hear that often. The church gets a bad rap a lot of times. Most rap's bad, but you know. But beyond a commitment to to God and his church, God asks us to make a commitment to the lost, to make a commitment to the lonely, to make a commitment to the needy. And as you saw in the video, sanctuary does those things. Feeding the poor, taking Christmas to the homeless, taking gifts halfway around the world to orphans. This is the Bible being lived out in our day. And I want you to notice, I'll, I'll kind of close with this. I will wrap this up pretty quick. After all, the, it doesn't say how long they were in the cave. Long enough to take 400 misfits of society and turn them into David's mighty men. I don't know how long that takes. But that's how long they were in there. And now that things got solved and things got settled and ravenous 
wolves turned into loving friends, they probably were tempted just to kind of stay in the cave. But it says in verse 5 of 22, the prophet Gad said to David, don't stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. You know where Judah was? That was where David's enemy Saul lived, ruled, and reigned. And God said to David through the prophet, David, you can't stay here in the cave. You'll never do great exploits. You'll never be happy if you just stay hiding together in this cave. You are called to impact your generation. I've got an adventure for you, so go. And you know what God would say to sanctuary today? You can't stay here in the church. You'll never do great exploits. You'll never be happy if you just stay hiding together in this church. You're called to impact your generation. I've got an adventure for you, so go. God's saying the same thing to us here at Sanctuary today. He's got a plan for this church. And I want to tell you something. If you call this church your home, that plan includes you. There are no spectators in God's plan. We're all participants. Ephesians 4.11 says, It was he who gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. God put leaders in people's lives not just to lead them, but to build them up so that the body collectively can do the works of service that God has prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God wants us all to be built up and prepared to serve him. I know you don't believe this. God prepared and and created this church with you in mind. And he's preparing you for your future. So take advantage of what's here. Sunday mornings, and I mean regular. Don't be a two-timer. There's four Sundays a month at least. Small groups, serving opportunities, set up, tear down, feed the, the, the homeless. Social activities. This church has more social activities. I'm not sure I want to be that social, but everybody likes it. And I know it's easier to imagine God using somebody else other than you. But the entire Bible was written by God with each one of us in mind. And it was written about people just as frail and flawed as you and I are. So when God wrote the New Testament, he was looking all the way down through history. And he was looking at you and you and you and me. So there's a promise in Acts. It applies to all of us. I know we don't believe it, but here's the promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's a cure for people who are distressed, indebted, and discontented, and it's this. Spend your lives serving Jesus. Spend your lives serving other people. The prophet Isaiah said long ago, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. Your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always and will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fails. And then for the rest of your life, there will be power in your testimony.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's just so easy not to be impressed with ourselves and because we know ourselves, and right, rightfully so. There's nothing impressive with us. But God, you've used people throughout every generation of history who weren't impressive without, without your Holy Spirit, without your, your grace and your mercy, your leading, your gifting. God, I pray this church would get a vision that God created this church with them in mind. That he saw their face when he said, there's going to be a church called Sanctuary. This church has been a sanctuary for so many, and God, I'm confident it will continue to be by the same grace and mercy that you've brought us this far. But God, let us prepare for the future well, and let us fulfill that future by your grace and in your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.